welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today we feature Adrian Rogers. Dr. Rogers was pastor at Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee, where he grew the membership from 9,000 members in 1972 to more than 29,000 by 2005. God's blessing on Adrian Rogers' ministry became even more evident with the birth of Love Worth Finding Ministries in 1987. Today, Adrian Rogers presents a sermon on Jesus is God's Answer to Man's Disappointment. There's so much today in the world about miracles, and there's so much bogus talk about miracles that uh, is not rooted in the Word of God and New Age mysticism. We know indeed that it is a sin to attribute to Satan the work of the Holy Ghost. It's also a sin to attribute to the Holy Ghost the work of Satan. And uh, there is, however, the great, wonderful, beautiful world and realm of the miraculous. And I want to say at the very outset of this message, even before we get into it, that I believe in miracles. But the greatest miracle is the transformation of a soul, as you're going to see in this series of messages. Now, in the days to come, you're going to be hearing more about miracles than you've heard in a long time. If you've heard it before, you'll hear it again. If you haven't, you'll hear it for the first time. But I pray that all of us together will learn to trust the Lord in a way that we never have before. John chapter 2, and uh, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they lacked wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews containing two or three firkins apiece. Uh, Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water, and they fill them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw some out now, and bear it unto the governor of the feast. And they bore it. And when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not from where it was, but the servants who drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. Now this miracle that I've just read to you is the first miracle in a parade of miracles that you will find in the Gospel of John. And literally, John mentions seven miracles. They are more than miracles, and the word to describe them is a word that is translated sign. That is, it is a miracle with a message. It is a sign with a significance. 
Now, what is the purpose of these seven signs? We don't have to guess. We don't have to ask ourselves in uh, puzzlement because God clearly tells us. Keep your bookmark there in John chapter 2 and fast forward to John chapter 20. And look, if you will, in verses 30 and 31. And you're going to find out why John gave seven miracles, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Here's what he says in verse 30. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Now let me pause right there and say, believe in miracles, but trust in Jesus. Do you understand what John is saying? These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing that you might have life through his name. The greatest of miracles, therefore, is the transformation of a life. The greatest miracle beyond the shadow of any doubt is the new birth, greater than any other miracle in my estimation. Now, there's several things I want us to learn now about this story of Jesus turning water into wine. And the title of our study tonight is this, that Jesus is God's answer to man's disappointment. Now, the first thing I want you to learn is, is I want you to see the setting of this miracle. This miracle, the first miracle that Jesus did, took place at a wedding. And that was a happy occasion. And I think it's tragic that Jesus is not invited to more weddings today, don't you? Now, Jesus attended both weddings and funerals. Jesus never broke up a feast, but he often broke up a funeral. Jesus uh, lived a life of great, great joy. And this miracle that he did at a wedding tells us that Jesus is not a cosmic killjoy, uh, that he came that we might have abounding joy. A little boy was studying the communion table at church, and he saw the cross on the communion table. He had just begun to go to school and learn arithmetic, addition and subtraction. And when he saw the cross on the communion table, he said, Mother, what is that plus mark doing on that table up there? Of course, that plus mark was a cross. But I remind you that the cross is a plus mark. It is not negative. And Jesus has come that we might have incredibly bright, beautiful, and joyful life. Now, the Bible does not tell us the names of the bride and groom. That's significant to me. Because had uh, the Bible told us the names of the bride and groom, that would have meant that they were significant people. Now, what does that tell us? That tells us that Jesus loves people like we are. Jesus loves ordinary people. And Jesus is involved in everyday issues. Here's the Lord of glory taking care of the refreshments at a party. That tells me that Jesus Christ wants to be with you on Thursday morning in the office just as well as he wants to be with you Sunday morning at church. That tells me that Jesus is interested in everyone, every day, and every circumstance. And yet, Jesus present there at that wedding turned what could have been a disaster into something delightful. And Jesus has a way of turning the monotonous to the momentous. And I see Jesus taking care of little things, small things. One of the most beautiful pictures in the Bible is 
Not only Jesus turning water into wine, but Jesus preparing breakfast for the disciples. He is the Lord that cares about those things that concern you. And so that's the setting of the miracle at a wedding. And here is the Lord of glory taking care of the mundane and yet bringing joy and happiness because Jesus is indeed a joyful, joyful person. Now, here's the second thing I want you to see. Not only the the setting of this miracle, but I want you to see the symbolism of it because it is rich in symbolism. Look, if you will, in verse 6. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, fill the water pots with water, and they fill them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, draw some out now and bear it unto the governor of the feast, and they bore it. Now, what is the symbolism of all of this? Jesus now is turning water into wine, Verse 9, and when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not where it was, but the servants who drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and saith unto him, every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. What is the symbolism of all of this? Wine in the Bible is an emblem, a symbol of joy. For example, you read in Psalm 104 and verse 15, and wine that maketh glad the heart of man, and oil to make his face to shine, and bread which strengtheneth man's heart. So God here speaks of oil and bread and wine as that which gives joy and strength. Now, I don't want us to get sidetracked here. I don't want us to get into a debate as to whether or not this was intoxicating wine or not. Personally, I don't believe that it was. As a matter of fact, the Bible warns against intoxicating wine in Proverbs chapter 23 and verses 31 and 32. Here's what God's word clearly says. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth its color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. That is, when it is fermented. Now, obviously, if there's a time when it is fermented, there's a time when it is not fermented. And God calls unfermented grape juice, he also calls that wine. Now, listen to it. He says concerning that which moves itself aright, that which is fermented, at the last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. Now, the joy and the refreshment that Jesus gives does not have a serpent in it. This was pure wine. It was not polluted wine. Intoxication is Satan's substitute for Jesus' joy. Now, don't get the idea that, uh, as some have erroneously said, that people in that day did not know how to preserve grape juice without it fermenting. Dr. Driver, a noted scholar, said this, and I quote, People of this day made a beverage something like apple cider by checking the fermentation. It was often used instead of water. The technical name was must, M-U-S-T. Now, wine is a symbol of joy. What about six water pots? Well, six is the number of a man. The Bible teaches us that in the book of the Revelation. 
These were earthen water jars. That is, they were made of clay, just as man is made of the dust of the earth. And so here are these six water pots. They picture mankind. But now these water pots are filled with water after the purification rituals of the Jews. Notice again what he says in verse 6, and there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purification of the Jews. That is, they were there for ritual cleansing. Now, put your Bible mark there, if you will, and turn to Mark chapter 7 for a moment. And you're going to understand something about the purification uh, that these Jews went through before they would eat. Mark chapter 7, verse 1. Then came together unto him of the Pharisees and certain of the scribes which come from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands off, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. As a matter of fact, I have read that the Jews of this day would wash their hands nine times to the elbows and let the water drip off their elbows before they would eat. And the idea was not sanitation. The idea here is ceremony. Uh, and they, the elders would not eat with unwashed hands. And verse 4, And when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be which they have received to hold as the washing of cups and pots brazen vessels, and of tables. Then the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? Now, he doesn't mean that their hands are not clean, but they have not gone through the ceremony of the washing of the hands. Now, notice what Jesus said in verse 6. And he answered and said unto them, Well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So here were these water pots. These water pots represented the traditional religion of the people. Cold stone pots filled with ritualism, representing man with religion and yet without reality. Now Jesus said to the servants, Fill these water pots. But he said, fill them to the brim. Why to the brim? Because Jesus said, I have come to fulfill the law. Not one jot or one tittle did Jesus fail to fulfill. That is, he filled it to the full. Jesus, down to the last drop, fulfilled the law. Now the Lord Jesus says that these six water pots are filled. To the brim, he says, now draw out and bear to the governor of the feast. That is the master of ceremonies. Where did they draw the water from? Did they draw it from the six water pots? I think not. Those water pots are filled to the brim. They drew the water now from the well. The same well that had filled the water pots is now the well that has its water changed to wine. Because what Jesus is saying is this, I am fulfilling the old and I am bringing in the new. You don't need these six water pots anymore. You now have the well. You now have me. I have come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. 
You see, the wine that they had at the beginning of the feast was their best, but it was inferior. And not only was it inferior, but it was limited. And now Jesus is a well of joy, marked not only by quality, but by endless quantity. Draw out now, go to the well, bring to the feast. At that wedding, therefore, there was wine enough and to spare. You see, the life that Jesus gives is abundant life. There was more than enough wine for the wedding. When Jesus fed the 5,000, there were 12 baskets full left over. When the prodigal son began to return to the father's house, he said, my father has bread enough and to spare. So when our Lord saves us, he does more than deliver us from hell. He gives us life abundant and free. He doesn't merely pardon our sins. The Bible says he will abundantly pardon. If you had uh, mistreated somebody and said, would you please forgive me? And they say, well, it's all right. I forgive you. That is a pardon. But if they take you into their arms and embrace you and begin to lavish love upon you, that is an abundant pardon. That's the kind of pardon that we have in our Lord. Not only abundant pardon, but abundant provision. Our Lord, as this wine was abundant, abundantly blesses us. Jesus said that you might have life abundantly. When I was preparing this message, my mind went to Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20. And now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. That's the symbolism here of this wine, that Jesus fulfilled it all and then gives himself as the well of joy to each of us. Now, here's a third thing I want you to see. We've looked at the setting. It's at a wedding. We've looked at the symbolism. But I want you to look for a moment at the secret of this miracle. Look, if you will, in verses 3 through 5. And when they lacked wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatever he saith unto you, do it. Now, let me just pause there to say that this is the best advice that anybody ever gave anyone upon the face of the earth. It's the same advice that I'm going to give to you. If Jesus tells you to do something, do it. Whatever he tells you to do, do it, because that's the secret of a miracle. Now, why should I obey the Lord Jesus Christ? Why should you learn instant, glad, free, full obedience? Why should we do what Mary told those servants to do? That is, whatever Jesus tells them to do, to do. Number one, for your good. Look, if you will, in verses 7 through 9. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water, and they fill them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw some out now, and bear it unto the governor of the feast. And they bore it. And when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, now underscore this in your Bible if you don't mind underscoring it, and knew not from where it was, but the servants who drew the water knew. Now let me just pause right there to say that if you want to be on the inside spiritually, become a servant. 
You see, the servants knew things that the master of the feast did not know. The master of ceremonies did not know what the servants knew. Why did they know and he not know? Because servants have a way of being on the inside. Put this verse down. Amos chapter 3 and verse 7. Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. Servants, no secrets. That's true in the White House. That's true in the governor's mansion. That's true in the banker's office. Servants know things that other people do not know. Household servants know things about you that your neighbors don't know. Isn't that true? Uh, Some of them good and some of them bad. But I'm going to tell you what Jesus said to those people who served him. Listen, John 15, verse 15. Henceforth, I call you not servants. For the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. Servants have a way of becoming friends. They have a way of getting in the inner circle. So, what is the secret of a miracle? Is to obey Jesus, whatever he says to do, to do it. Why? For your good. Number two, for their gladness. When these servants obeyed the Lord Jesus, everybody at the party, at the feast, was blessed. You see, their obedience was not only for their good, but it was also uh, for others' gladness. Others are made glad when we obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, not only, uh, and and by the way, let me say this, that when our Lord does a miracle, he generally does it through somebody else. Now, our Lord could have, without any human hands and without any human help, performed that miracle. But he told those servants to fill those water jars. When the Lord Jesus was ready to raise Lazarus from the grave, he told the servants to roll away the stone. God does his miracles through human instrumentality. Now, why should you obey? Number one, for your good. Number two, for their gladness. Number three, for his glory. The Bible teaches that when this miracle was done, Jesus' glory was manifested. Look in verse 11. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory. Now, how was his glory manifested? Well, a miracle was done. And we've said it speaks symbolically of the salvation that he gives. But notice his glory was manifested when people obeyed him. Obedience to him gives him glory. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6 and verse 46, And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? What right do we have to say that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior if we do not obey him? When we do obey him, we give him glory, and that's what we exist for. Now, Mary said, whatever he says to you, do it. When I thought about this, I thought about Simon Peter out there had been fishing all night. The Lord Jesus from the shore called out and said, have you caught anything? He said, we've toiled all night, we've taken nothing. Jesus said, cast out your nets on the other side. And Simon Peter said this, nevertheless, what does the nevertheless refer to? We've fished all night and taken nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will. Now, Simon Peter was a commercial fisherman. 
He knew, humanly speaking, it would do no good. But he said, nevertheless, at thy word, I will. May I challenge you tonight to make this the motto of your life? Just simply let this be the motto of your life. At thy word, I will. That's what Simon Peter said. At thy word, I will. That's what Mary told those servants. Whatever he says to you, do it. You do not have to understand the command of God to obey that command. Don't parade it past the judgment bar of your reasoning to see if it makes sense or not. It may not make sense. Filling those water jars did not make sense. Throwing the net out on the other side of the boat did not make sense, except it made sense to him. Now, here's the the fourth thing I want you to see. I want you to see the significance of this miracle. What is the significance? The significance is this, that Jesus is in the transformation business. Uh, He transformed worthless water into sparkling wine. And he's still in the transformation business. He is transforming people, human beings like me, like you. Someone wisely said, nature forms us, Uh, sin deforms us, education informs us, penitentiaries reform us, but Jesus transforms us. He is a transformer, and he's changing now by a miracle water into sparkling wine. I think of how he transformed uh, Simon Peter. A blustering, big mouth, burly, smelly fisherman into the flaming apostle of Pentecost. I think how he transformed the apostle John. The apostle John with a hair-trigger temper had a nickname, the son of thunder. The apostle John became the apostle of love. I think how he transformed Matthew who was a tax gatherer, a tax collector, to Matthew who wrote the gospel of Matthew. I think of how he transformed Mary, who was a demon-possessed harlot, to a herald of the resurrection. I think of how he transformed my own particular life. The miracle is the transformation business. I heard of a man who was giving a testimony at a Salvation Army meeting. And uh, the, it was one of those street meetings where they had the salvation ban. And this man was testifying in an open-air crowd. There was a heckler who said, why don't you shut up and sit down? You're just dreaming. That heckler felt a little girl pulling at his coattail and said, sir, may I speak to you? That man who's talking up there is my daddy. Daddy used to be a drunkard. He used to spend all of the money that he made on whiskey. My mother was very sad and would cry most of the time. As a matter of fact, sometimes when my daddy would come home, my daddy would hit my mother and said, I didn't have shoes to wear. I didn't have a nice dress to wear to school. She said, look at these shoes. You see this pretty dress? My daddy bought this for me. And said, you see my mother? She's the one over there with the bright smile on her face. That's my mother. My mother's happy now. She said, my mother sings even when she's doing the ironing. And then that little girl said, Mr., if my daddy is dreaming, please don't wake him up. Now, I like that story because it illustrates for me so richly and so fully what I'm talking about, 
that the significance of this miracle is that Jesus is the transformer. The one that turned water into wine is the one that can change radically, dramatically, and eternally any heart that will come to him. Now, here's the last thing I want us to see, and that's the sequel to this miracle. The sequel to this miracle. Because this miracle has some, uh, some symbolic and some prophetic significance. Now, notice again, if you will, in, in uh, chapter 2 and verse 1. And the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. The third day. Well, you know that uh, the Holy Spirit can write many, many things. So why did the Holy Spirit say it was the third day? Well, I believe there's some symbolism here, and I believe there's a hint of prophecy here. Because since Jesus began these miracles, there have already been two days of human history. You remember what Peter said in uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years? And a thousand years is one day. I believe, folks, 2,000 years have passed. That is, two days are gone, and we're on the threshold of the third day. I believe that that third day is about to dawn in all of its glory. And I believe that this wedding typifies and prefigures another wedding that's coming. And that's the marriage supper of the Lamb, and I'm looking forward to being there. When I get there, and when you get there, I want to tell you that the wine of joy will run freely and his glory will be eminently manifested at that wedding feast. And you know, that's the way it is with Jesus. It just keeps getting better and better. Notice again in verse 9, when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not from where it was, but the servants who drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. Now, what does that mean? It means with Jesus, life always is getting better and better. Jesus gives the best last. Satan gives the best first. The Bible says concerning Satan's ways, the bread of deceit is sweet. But afterward, a man's mouth shall be filled with gravel. But if you know the Lord Jesus, you can say it, sing it, mean it, and know it, that every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. I was walking through an alley behind a Sunday school. I did not go to Sunday school. My family did not attend church. It was Sunday morning. I heard them in there singing a song. They were singing this. Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. And I was in my early teen years, but I said to myself, that is not true. That is impossible. Nothing can keep getting sweeter. I did not deny that it might be sweet to know Jesus, but in my heart and in my mind, I said, that is not true. It is impossible for every day to be sweeter than the day before. But since I have been saved, I know it is absolutely possible. It is totally true. And I'm telling you that I am enjoying the wine of joy that Jesus pours out. You see, 
The devil gives the best first. It, that's the way it is with life. You start out in life as a child with the joy and wonder of childhood, and then as a youth, there's the vision and the enthusiasm of youth, and in manhood, there's the strength of manhood. But then about middle age, you get into the battle of life and the weariness of age, and, and, uh, and things begin to deteriorate and run downhill if you don't know the Lord. The devil doesn't have any happy old people. Have you noticed that? A friend of mine is Dr. Jess Moody. Dr. Jess Moody wrote some interesting words, and I'm going to quote them for you. He said, what do aged atheists have to talk about as they sit around to die? Do they discuss the legacy of morality, decency, integrity, and spiritual sensitivity they have bequeathed to their children? Or the good atheism has done the world, the hospitals, orphanages, the elevation of womanhood, and the mass distribution of decent literature? Perhaps they discuss the great bulwark against communism that atheism has erected. And when the sun is sinking low, and when the conversation for the wheelchair atheists begins to lull, they can joyously contemplate their future. There is so much for an aged atheist to look forward to. And then he concludes it with these words, old atheists never die, they just go to hell. Think about it. Without Jesus, it gets worse and worse and worse. But I'm telling you folks, that when Jesus did his first miracle, it was a manifestation of his glory. But I can hardly wait for him to come again. And soon and very soon he's coming Every pain and heartache we'll ever know, we'll know this side of the grave or this side of his coming again. Thank God that we're looking forward to his coming. Now, let me close this message by saying that Jesus performed this miracle. He turned water into wine, but it was a miracle with a message that he is in the transformation business. And the miracles of grace are always greater than the miracles of glory. When Jesus turned water into wine, he did it with a word. But when he saved my soul, he hung on a cross. The greatest miracle is the miracle of the new birth. And John said many other signs did Jesus, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you might have life through his name. Why don't you pray right now where you are, Lord Jesus. Pray it, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. I believe you died for my sins. I believe that God raised you from the dead. And now I open my heart and I receive you as my Lord and Savior. I don't look for a sign, I don't ask for a feeling. I stand on your word. I trust you to save me. If you've never done that, why don't you do it right now? Come into my heart, forgive my sin, and save me, Lord Jesus. And Lord, help me to make it public. Help me not to be ashamed of you. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. 
You've been listening to Dr. Adrian Rogers. Today's sermon was provided courtesy of the Love Worth Finding Ministries. Find more great content on their website, lovewortfinding at lwf.org. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.